Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome, my name is Carol Hills, and I'm a senior producer and reporter at PRI's The World, and I'm today's moderator. We're here to talk about uh, disaster relief in the wake of uh, some incredible hurricanes, and particularly Maria, and the, why it's taken so long to restore uh, Puerto Rico uh, since that hurricane. My panelists uh, to my immediate right is Jose Sanchez. He himself is Puerto Rican. He is a deputy director of research and development at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And he and a team from the Army Corps went to Puerto Rico after uh, Maria to help restore power. Um, Richard Serino is a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And he is former deputy administrator of FEMA. And Kelly Bentz is Head of Global Disaster Response and Relief at Airbnb. And we're going to hear more about that in a few minutes. Um, joining me remotely is Daniel Ramos. He mm -hmm. is with the Association of Primary Health in Puerto Rico. And also joining remotely is Brad Kaiserman. He's the Vice President of Disaster Operations and Logistics at the Red Cross. This event is being presented jointly with PRI's The World and WGBH. We're streaming live on the websites of the forum and PRI's The World, and we're also streaming on Facebook. This program will include, include a brief Q&A at the end, and you can email questions to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening right now on the forum site. Now, as all of us know, 2017 was a really rough year for hurricanes. Um, Puerto Rico, Texas, U.S. Virgin Islands really devastated. And we want to focus on Puerto Rico because six months later, the island is still recovering from Irma and Maria. And we, we're going to talk about extreme hurricanes by extension and the future that holds for disaster relief. But first, we want to take a look at a recent U.S. Army Corps of Engineers video about power restoration in Puerto Rico. And this video was published two weeks ago. Good afternoon. Colonel Jason Kirk here, the commander of Task Force Power Restoration and Jacksonville District. Here in Puerto Rico at the Ponce Port, right behind me you see a vessel a vessel that's offloading the critical material that we need to restore power to the grid here in Puerto Rico. We're standing here today at day 149 after Hurricane Maria's landfall. We've got uh, over 82% of the power restored, but we're laser focused on the final 250,000 or so customers that remain without power. That material behind me is part of the solution. Down here this morning, we just finished up a rock drill, a logistics rock drill, to make sure that every point in the cycle of moving logistics, from request to manufacture, to Jacksonville, on a ship, down here to Puerto Rico, on a truck, out to the line utility workers in the field, gets to where it's supposed to be, and everyone knows how that is gonna take place. 
So we're getting after it. We're proud to be restoring strong here in Puerto Rico. Jose Sanchez, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you've been in Puerto Rico lately and you grew up there. Uh, power restoration has been described as the main overarching challenge um, in Puerto Rico. Uh, as he said, um, power has been more than 80% recovered at this point, but there's still a lot to be done. And uh, as we keep saying, it's, it's six months out from the hurricane. Why has power restoration in particular been so tough uh, in Puerto Rico and what's the current status? So the priority is to safely, urgently restore uh, power to the people of Puerto Rico. That's been our mission and continues to be. Right now we're about 90% um, of restoration. Now, um, the, the, the challenges are, have been multiple things. One, expectation management. Making sure people understand what's out there, what's the condition of the system, what was the condition of the system prior to the storm as well too. Also, communication. Communication has been key. Make sure that people understand regularly, constantly what's going on, and other time with facts-based, which is key. Uh, logistics, as you, Colonel Kirk just mentioned, logistics has been a big challenge for Puerto Rico. Not only is it it's an island in the middle of the Caribbean, but it's also an island with a very complex top topography. And that creates other challenges to get the materials and to get to the lines and get to the sites to, to work on. Um, the amount of response that the federal government has in this kind of uh, event is different. Um, it's, it it um, overshadows in comparison to what we have done in Katrina and Texas and, and Florida. In those cases, the states put up themselves a lot of the work. Uh, in this case, the federal government has to um, do the majority of the work. In this case, power restoration, which is uh, totally new for us in, in terms of major response. Um, materials access. The depletion of the materials and inventory out there was a big factor. Not only was it in Maria in Puerto Rico, but Irma in Florida, and Harvey in Texas, the wildfires in California, earthquakes in, in Mexico, all these things compounded into having a depleted inventory out there and the manufacturers could not keep up with the demand. And then you got also a politics and administration issue where there is a fiscal constraint in the island and that fiscal constraint created all these problems for them as well. I want to go to Daniel Ramos, who is also Puerto Rican, and he's uh, speaking to us from Puerto Rico remotely. Um, Daniel, you work in the area of primary care uh, in Puerto Rico, um, and of course, the power situation is related to the ability to deliver primary care. Um, tell us your role in, in, in your organization and give us an idea of how state health care services on the island have been affected uh, by Maria and, and to the degree to which they've recovered. Well, um, the Puerto Rico Primary Care Association is the group that is the organization that group the community health centers. We got uh, 94 clinics and we serve in 59 municipalities here in Puerto Rico, including the two islands that is in the east part of the main island, Vieques and Culebra. We also um, serve a population of patients that is 300. 52,172. And since Maria, we receiving a lot of more patients per week per health centers. Um, one of the major uh, uh, challenge that we confirmed was the power, the communication, and other health problems the health center was working to the community. Uh, in the power, we was, uh, because other health providers shut down the clinics, many of 
new patient was coming to the clinic and the community, uh, community health centers was trying to figure out how many times they can keep uh, offering the service to the community with the generators. So there was challenge getting fuel to the generators and figure out um, the specific window of time that they can keep working and offering the continuous service to the community. And the communications, there was very hard to keep the communications with the health centers because you cannot make a phone call but any phones or cell phones. So primary, primary healthcare was figured out the communication alternative plan. One of those was uh, going to the health center straight, talking, uh, meeting the health center face to face and to see the priorities and the need of the health centers with the community. Other problem was try to bring the health centers at the same level at the hospital. That was the infra critical infrastructure level. So health centers can be at the same level and take as priority like the hospital. So, you know, put them to restore the power more of. So thanks for the the office that represent us here in Puerto Rico, that is the Health Resources and Service Administration, they was working and advocating for the health center to put at the same level, the critical infrastructure level. So health center was going to the community to see the needs and the priorities and keep offering the continuous service. So the health center was stopping a lot of outbreak disease like leptospirosis, human skivies, um, conjunctivitis, and gastritis. I want to go to Brad, who's also remote. Uh, Brad Kaiserman is with the Red Cross. Uh, he's dealt with a lot of different disasters. Brad, should we have been surprised by the impact of Hurricane Maria? No, Carol. I, I, one, I'd say the fact that I don't think we should be surprised by it uh, is not a criticism of readiness or anything else. I think it's more of a, a global issue that we are seeing this unending, relentless pace of natural disasters. Uh, Daniel talked about it uh, in his remarks, uh, and uh, I, uh, as did Jose. And I think that what we're seeing here is a uh, what I call the AAA theory. So the first A is for aggressive. We're seeing a far more aggressive uh, disaster risk than I think we've seen in previous years or previous decades. If I look at the data, it looks like it started about 2015. We're seeing more frequency, more intensity. I mean, I just don't have to go any further than landfall of Hurricane Harvey on the 25th of August, landfall of uh, Irma in USVI on the 6th of September, Maria's uh, landfall of Irma in Florida on the 9th of September, on the 16th, Maria landfall in Puerto Rico. On, and it's not just natural disasters either. We're seeing more and more human-caused disasters. So in the middle of all this, the 1st of October, the worst uh, mass shooting in the history of the United States in Las Vegas. We also forget Hurricane Nate around the 6th of October. Two days later, on the 8th of October, uh, wildfires in, uh, in Northern California. And then about uh, a month and a half later, the most deadly wildfires, the Thomas Fire, uh, in California, followed by mudslides and Typhoon Gita in an American Samoa, where we have folks responding now. Uh, more than 15% of the homes on the island destroyed by Gita. 
floods in the Midwest today, and we're on our third nor'easter. So I think the fact that there's a more aggressive pattern here, I think the evidence presents that. The other thing we're seeing is um, the other A is aging. So um, our infrastructure is aging. We saw this with the uh, electrical infrastructure uh, in Puerto Rico, but that's not the only example. Uh, you don't have to go much further than uh, the infrastructure in Flint, Michigan, that led to uh, water concerns. And Flint is far from the only community in the country that has infrastructure, aging infrastructure issues leading to uh, water concerns. Uh, Oroville Dam. Uh, folks remember back to early 2017, uh, there was a significant risk of dam collapse. 30,000 people evacuated in about six hours. Uh, uh, all of that is a sign of aging infrastructure. You look at the age of some of the dams and bridges, uh, other infrastructure in the United States. As it ages, that creates risk. And it's not just the infrastructure risk. It's the intersection between the natural hazard like Hurricane Maria and the aging infrastructure like the electrical grid in Puerto Rico. And that intersection, that creates a risk that, frankly, we haven't had to deal with in, you know, you, you didn't deal with that risk 150 years ago or even 100 years ago because you didn't have that kind of technology development. And then last but not least, and again, I think Jose mentioned this in his remarks, there's this management of, uh, of expectations. I call this the asymmetric expectation problem. Um, the public expects and through uh, social media um, communicates about uh, very, very intensive demands for service that quite frankly are, are not, with, they're not, they're not reasonable. I mean, uh, I don't care whether you're the private sector, the nonprofit sector or government, um, the, the very definition, the distinction between a disaster and a catastrophe, catastrophe catastrophes destroy the very resources that you need to respond to them. That's what happened in Puerto Rico. That's what happened in Harvey. And so I think uh, it's, it's communicating those expectations effectively and just the increasing demand uh, on those services uh, as, as folks get quicker and quicker ways of communicating with technology. So that's where I think we are, and I don't think we should be surprised to see more and more of that coming. Rich Serena, I want to go to you. Uh, Brad's outlined the kind of compounding of disasters that led up to Maria, and there's been more hurricanes since then. Um, you were involved in FEMA at a high level. In, the, in this instance, um, do you think that you know, FEMA has been praised and criticized for its responses to these recent hurricanes? <clears throat> do you think it's fair or unfair? I think it's both. I think actually they, they deserve a, a lot of praise. Uh, because if you look at uh, everything that Brad has just talked about, that affected over 25 million uh, people in the United States uh, and over $16 billion in disaster relief funds throughout those disasters. And I can go on and on with lots of statistics. But I think the praise has to go for the people. The people that have worked to respond to those, the first responders, the uh, police, fire, EMS, the local emergency managers, the state emergency managers, but also the people from FEMA that responded. Because one thing you have to remember during a disaster, the people that are affected in their community are also the responders. Mm -hmm. So they're affected as well. So that puts even a larger drain on it. But in FEMA sent out folks, full-time employees, almost emptied headquarters in Washington from all the regions across the country. In addition to that, uh, members of the reservists in FEMA Corps. That as you start to look over this, as we call the arc of time, that <coughs> in the leadership part that's needed with that during that arc of time, what's going on in Harvey in Texas, the folks in Texas have to focus on that. But now the folks at FEMA have to focus. Now they have to shift to Florida. Now they also have to maintain both of those, but shift to focus that's going on in Puerto Rico, all simultaneously. So I think that 
I think they deserve praise in dealing with all these disasters over the last year. But I think it also, uh, they admit that there's time, that we have to change the paradigm, how do we respond to these disasters. It's called for, for a sea change. As Administrator Long freely admits that we have to change the way that FEMA and government do business. We have to bring together, uh, as we call the whole community, the federal, state, local, tribal governments. We have to bring together the nonprofits, the faith-based community. We have to bring together the business community. We have to bring in academia to take a more important role in how they help prepare, respond, and mitigate disasters and recover from disasters. But then we also have to look at, have the public look at that they have a shared responsibility as well, how they become involved and how we start to look at, is just changing the way that we respond to disasters and more importantly, how we prepare for disasters. And we have to start to look at how we're able to bring in new technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, that can help us prepare and save lives and mitigate some of the consequences of disasters going forward. It's interesting. I want to go to Kelly now. She's in the private sector with Airbnb. Uh, we've heard a lot about kind of government response and humanitarian response. But I'm curious, Kelly, first of all, uh, what the role of Airbnb in disaster response and the thoughts you have about the role the private sector should have. Sure. So I think a lot of times people ask me, um, what does Airbnb have to do with disaster, right? Most people think of us as a marketplace or a platform where people can find a vacation home, um, and that certainly happens. Um, so if you can imagine, we have, we're in 191 countries, 60,000 cities with over 4 million hosts worldwide. Um, so anything from a hurricane, a typhoon, a wildfire, the Las Vegas shooting, everything that's been mentioned, all of that is impacting our community, both our hosts and our guests. Um, so in times of disaster, my team is looking at how are we going to respond both as a business, um, so how do we help our hosts get back online, but then also um, how are we supporting the broader community. So oftentimes in disaster um, we, we have a program called Open Homes where we activate our hosts. Um, they list their space for zero dollars, so they waive their fees, we waive our fees. Um, and first responders, in addition to those displaced, are able to identify temporary accommodations. Additionally, um, we think it's super important, I think we've heard communication over and over again, having that direct line of communication to our hosts and guests is something um, that is very valuable for us in disasters. We're able to send immediately information that links to local authorities. So what we know is local authorities and government typically have really good information. They're just not as good at getting it out. We're good at getting information out. So that's one of the key roles that we play as well. Um, I think broadly as private sector, um, Airbnb can be looked at both in the sense of being a private sector tech company, but then also we have this massive community of hosts and guests. Um, and so that is a community and looking at that as an asset and a resource in these times. Um, but also seeing that as part of the local community that's impacted. Um, so we have a, a large role to play, and I would say um, what we're seeing more and more is this sort of trend of people being more welcoming to allow us to come in and try to support. Um, we really try to do that in line with government entities in addition to the nonprofit organizations and communities um, all over the world. Specifically in Puerto Rico, did Airbnb respond after the hurricanes? We did, um, and so I think just like all of the other panelists have mentioned, um, we were we were doing everything between Harvey all the way up through the NorCal fires, and um, so I think with Puerto Rico specifically, we had activated twice actually for our hosts in that region at the response level. We were communicating with our hosts, uh, working with local government, trying to identify additional ways, um, and now obviously in the recovery, we're, we'll be in the recovery for a long time, um, trying to continue to identify additional ways that we can continue to support. So both promoting the region, uh, when Puerto Rico and others are back online, trying to get more visitors to show up, um, and trying to think of additional creative ways of partnership, particularly with the other tourism industry partners. 
And in Puerto Rico, did people open their homes not only to <clears throat> people affected by the storm, but to emergency workers coming in? That's right. So we have two various programs. One is with the um, open homes to zero dollars where hosts waive their fees. What we also know, particularly in recovery times, infusing resources into that local community is absolutely critical. Um, so right now, um, which we've been doing the entire time, but we provide travel credits to relief agencies like Mercy Corps, All Hands Volunteers, um, and others, where they're able to stay with Airbnb hosts, but we're actually um, footing the bill. Um, so it's free to the agency, the host is receiving payment, um, and they're able to stay there in long term in the recovery. So we have multiple agencies in Puerto Rico that we're supporting um, and grateful for all the work they're doing. So we've heard from a number of these panelists that um, people immediately affected, neighbors, church groups, um, all sorts of people are the first, they're the literal first responders when uh, a natural disaster occurs. And we want to shift our conversation in part to, to address that. Um, and how real people, as well as other organizations, can help uh, now and in the future. And as an example, we're going to take a look at a clip from a video, and it's about how some tr a group of truckers in Puerto Rico uh, worked with two faith-based organizations to help displaced kids uh, after the hurricane. And this video is from FEMA. The uh, first few weeks in January were a little slow. And one of the guys in FEMA suggested that we do stuff for the orphanages. He said that they were underfunded and they needed help. So then the lady that works down here introduced us to the two locations. Sí, ese primer día fue bien difícil. El techo obstaculizó la salida. Los empleados un poco nerviosos porque no sabían de sus familiares. Teníamos planta eléctrica que nos ayudó a continuar con esos servicios hacia los niños. Cuando este grupo llegó, Llevan como tres semanas con nosotros y ellos han venido de hasta los sábados y domingos han estado aquí. We painted and the moisture and the cement it's it's been an ongoing arduous task. We paid a contractor to fix the fencing. It was in bad shape. We power washed all the toys, um, cleaned up the backyard. The backyard was uh, in bad shape. And the kids are all very thankful. Here you actually do some and you see people smile. It's more of a specific thing that you know you can tell you're making an impact. De verdad que yo no tengo palabras para, para agradecerles. Eh, han sido un support, un support bastante fuerte y bastante necesario porque yo digo que aquí somos muy pocos, somos todas mujeres. Estas manos que se han llegado aquí han sido una bendición. Y yo espero que cuando se vayan siempre recuerden el hogar Santa Teresita. Rich, Serena, I'm going to start with you uh, as we kind of shift the focus to talking about solutions and, and maybe new ways of, of, of responding. Um, what recommendations do you have for, for people to help prepare for disasters uh, and then help afterwards? Well, I think one of the most important things is to develop the, that culture of preparedness, as I mentioned, throughout that whole community, all the way down to the individual level. We just saw some great examples of people helping people, neighbors helping neighbor. Now, if you're able to help yourself prepare during a disaster, just think you're going to be able to help your next door neighbor, uh, that elderly person next door. That you're able to have your basic supplies. And if you're able to help that next door neighbor, the elderly one, maybe the person next door, a single parent with a number of children, able to help them as well. So individuals being prepared, simple things to have enough water and food, with not just for three days, sometimes for a bit longer, depending on where you are. Having the basic needs, uh, whether it's, you know, if you're in New England after the blizzards we've just had, perhaps you need some extra clothing to keep there. If you're in Puerto Rico, perhaps you need different, different materials. So understanding where you are, geography, and what you need to be prepared. Because if, you, if the individual is 
prepared, then that local community neighborhood's going to be prepared. If that community neighborhood's prepared, then that town or city's going to be prepared. And if that town and city is prepared, then you're going to have that state or territory prepared, and then that builds to have an, a resilient country. So it's really how you're able to bring that whole continuity together. But you have to develop that culture of preparedness, having people uh, work together. And not only do you bring and help them with material goods, but you also give hope. If you look in, in the video and other times, just bringing simple things to people gives them hope. And it doesn't always have to be the federal government. It can be the local philanthropy. It could be Airbnb. Just giving people a little bit of hope is sometimes a lot more than other things that you can give them as well. You mentioned uh, people need to be prepared. Who should be doing the preparing? Is it a government role? Is it a, is it a community role? Who, who's who's going to get it's, people? It's a role together. It's, it's bringing together. The government can and advise you what you need to have, and FEMA's ready.gov has a website that can tell you what you need to prepare for what disasters in what region. But it also takes the individual to accept some responsibility to be ready, to have the things that they need to survive if you're going to lose power, if you're going to be um, in very hot weather, to be prepared for that, if you're going to go through the storm, to know where you have to go to be safe during that storm. Similarly, if you're in Oklahoma, to go in, into safe places places for tornadoes in Texas, as we see in Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, to be prepared to, you know, to, for the life safety to survive the storm and then how to survive the recovery afterwards as well. I want to go to Daniel in Puerto Rico, you know, who's, who's been there, you know, lives there and was there before, you know, during and after the storm. Uh, Daniel, I wonder what lessons you've learned on this preparedness front. What, what kind of things have turned out to be lifesavers in terms of what maybe individuals and residents had on their own that have helped in the recovery? Yeah, um, well, we need to be prepared more than two or three weeks, like 30 days or more. We need to keep the uh, inventory about medical supplies, uh, fuel, water, alternative uh, communication like CB radios or two-way radios or probably satellite phones. Um, we need to, to make a, a, an assessment of the, the areas can be more dangerous like uh, landslide or other things that can shut down the road. Um, we need to keep like stronger communication with the major of the each municipality or other entities can also help us and probably the keep keep on working and establish the the level of critical infrastructure um, same um, equal opportunity as the hospital so we can be at the same level because health center is the first line to respond to the community. And I think the, the local government need to know that. And it's very important to us to keep offering the service with the community because health centers go straight to the community. They're not just being the health center. They go to the community, go to the shelters and understand the needs and the priority of their, their people. I want to go back to Brad, who's, who's remote as well. Um, Brad, what have you found actually makes a difference um, for people, neighbors helping neighbors, or what, what are the kind of things that actually help after disaster, and, and, and what doesn't, that we may think does? 
I think that uh, to, to expand on Richie's point a bit, um, you know, there, there, we tell people that there are three general things they can do as individuals and households. But I would say that that is true of um, uh, profit organizations, private nonprofit organizations and the government. And that is, first of all, be informed understand your risk, right? Um, in, and, and I would also say focus on what your high probability, high consequence risk is, right? It's easy to focus on the low probability, high consequence like New Madrid or Cascadia or some of these catastrophic events that people are expecting. And I think that's an appropriate role for federal government. But for individuals and households, if I live in Texas, I need to be ready for floods. If I need to flood in Florida, I need to be ready for hurricanes. And that's my high probability, high consequence event. So be informed about the threat. Plan ahead. Pew, uh, you know, the Pew Foundation did a study and indicated that uh, over uh, about 50% of Americans can't survive a $400 emergency hit to their budgets without either going into debt or using a credit card they don't know how they're going to pay off. So there's a, there's a piece of this that's just involved in, in planning and making sure that you've got the resources available and set aside, because when you don't, all that does is it, it compounds the need in the community. And then there's the take action piece of this. Um, you know, I looked at the New York Times this morning. There is not a single mention, there's no article on the front page of the New York Times online, if it's still a page, um, about any disaster activity whatsoever. I look at the FEMA briefing right here in front of me. There are over 20 active open disasters that FEMA is responding to. Red Cross has 25 open active disasters today, several hundred people in shelters tonight. So uh, people do need to take action. If the media is not covering it, that doesn't mean it's not happening. So you can volunteer. You can volunteer for the American Red Cross. You can volunteer for faith-based organizations. Uh, there are corporate volunteer opportunities. There's philanthropy. You can donate. You can donate of your time, donate your money, but but you're giving that to organizations that can prepare to respond. Because if the, those organizations, whether it's the Red Cross, the Southern Baptist, the Salvation Army, there's a host of organizations that, that are volunteer organizations active in disaster. If they don't have the resources before the disaster strikes, you're behind to begin with. And uh, as our good friend Craig Fugate used to say, the one thing you can never get back in a disaster is time. So it's really about being informed of your risk, planning ahead for that in every respect, and taking action in your community and at your level of government to actually be ready for what's coming. Kelly, I want to go to you briefly. Um, you mentioned in your opening remarks that uh, a company like Airbnb is a tech company. It has this big capacity to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in what way, what can, what can an Airbnb company do that, that other sectors can't? and how does it use that in preparing? Sure, so I think that's a multi-pronged question. Um, so I think one, to go back to some points that both Rich and um, Brad brought up around general preparedness. Um, so as the hosts and communities, we partner with uh, organizations like the Red Cross or Civil Protection Authorities or Emergency Management Agencies um, to actually host offline trainings with our hosts. Um, and so that's local teams hosting these um, uh, trainings and workshops, that'll be continuing to expand. I think what, one of the things that we also know, just um, general disasters, survivors are the most susceptible to, um, or mo most apt to become more prepared. So one of the strategies we're utilizing is really looking at the, all of those communities from last year that were hardest hit, going back to them, make sure that they're prepared this year um, or and for future, and making sure that those communities are becoming more prepared and that we're um, actually supporting them. I think back to your question around communications, one of the key ways that we have to connect is 
through our technology or through our platform, right? So we can um, very quickly send an, a message to hosts and guests in a time of emergency and be able to send them messaging and notifications to articulate what is the situation that's happening, who is the local resource, um, who is updating their Twitter handle and their, um, their website. And so one of the things I always go around when I'm meeting with civil protection agencies and emergency management is the importance of updating their website when and when they can. Obviously, there's the power issues um, that are that challenge everybody, and I think that infrastructure will continue to be invested in, particularly after last year's lessons. But I think um, the biggest thing is to make sure you're updating accurately for, from these government entities, so that um, people and agencies and organizations like Airbnb are able to actually inform your constituents, um, because we're connecting both with hosts. But I think one of the biggest values is we're actually connecting with visitors in your community, um, and those visitors typically have no idea where to go, what to do, um, and so uh, we do find this as a, a very helpful um, tool that we're able to utilize. I want to go back to um, Jose and, and talk about this question that I still have and a lot of people, you know, six months out, we're still, we're still wrestling with this in Puerto Rico. It seems kind of shocking, even just to say it, you know, despite the reasons given. Yes. What, what, um, what it was, a, 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 what limitations or what challenges did the natural disaster present versus what mistakes were made? in recovering to this. So it's gotta be a combination of both because it's still shocking that six months out, electricity has not been fully restored in Puerto Rico. So what's, what happened here? There's, there's several things, right? The condition of the infrastructure before the storm is a key factor here. There's a, a, a super fragile system. Irma hits it just before Maria and uh, impacts over a million people without power. And it didn't even hit the island per se. It just skirted the island. So it, I lived in there for 26 years in the island, and I can tell you the power was never reliable in the 26 years I was there. And so there's always been issues in that system. And then on top of that, there's an O&M, uh, operations and maintenance component to it, right, that requires investments and reinvestment in the infrastructure, uh, maintenance of that to trees that were, you know, impacted lines, um, and that's just because they didn't have the right of way cleaned up and maintained um, as it should be, right? But there's also the component of the response itself. The sheer magnitude of the response was not really something that um, we are prepared for and to have a structure in place to say, you know, power is going to be knocked out in some place and the federal government is going to do this event. No, because usually it's done by the state or by the local power authority. They have their plan, they have their resources, they have their agreements in place to activate them uh, as needed. But Puerto Rico has not, did not have that. And Puerto Rico, uh, Hugo and Georgia's when it happened, 89, 98 respectively, they handled it themselves uh, with little help from outside. Well, that was not the case. And I think in the future, it's gonna be more and more outside help needed to restore power. But is the issue for Puerto Rico that it could have had a plan and it doesn't? Or that its territory status means that it doesn't have the infrastructure in place period to respond? No, I would say regardless of what you are, I mean, a plan is, is a plan. And I think Brad touched up on it, Richie did too. You gotta have a plan, you gotta exercise that plan too as well. Um, and we noticed that the, there's a component to the government itself too. It changes every four years. There is a, there's, this power company, for example, is a, a public corporation, so it falls underneath the government and the actual government uh, reassigns that director every four years, for example, and, and even down to the, to the section chiefs within the organization. And that creates a problem in continuity and knowledge, which goes back to training, as we said before. 
and it needs to be constant. And that, that needs to be pulled out of the bookshelf and say, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to be spread out on the island, this is how we're going to respond to this event. Um, now, resiliency is a, is, is a popular word these days, and lots of communities and countries want to create a resilient uh, infrastructure. Um, in, in, uh, Rich, I want to ask you about this. Um, how does one do that? Is that sort of a, a local and state, or in the case of per, uh, Puerto Rico, sort of the territory level, just making that happen? Or is, you know, how, with Puerto Rico, its economy has, has basically collapsed. I mean, is there an opportunity here, or is it unreasonable to think that, that Puerto Rico can rebuild it in a more resilient way? Well, I think you, you can, I look at sometimes crisis as an opportunity. That if you have the opportunity to rebuild better, than where you were before. And that is not going to be just on a local community. It's not just going to be on the state. It's not just going to be on the territory. It's going to be that along with the federal government. Um, that is unfortunately sometimes going to require the change in some of FEMA's laws and rules and regulations and the way that things are done. Mm -hmm. Allowing to rebuild better homes. Some, the FEMA sometimes doesn't allow you to do that. There's an opportunity now, and they're doing some of that in Texas, to look at let's do things differently. Let's see how we can maybe even save some money, and on top of saving money, rebuild the homes and the infrastructure better than they were before. Why doesn't FEMA allow it now? Well, because if under certain, and Brad would probably be much better at this than yeah, I am, uh, is certain uh, parts of the Stafford Act that you're, you're on what you're allowed to do, you can, how you can only rebuild to what was there. Um, and certain parts have been changed and tweaked, but I think it, you need to look at how we do business and look at things completely different. If we can, you know, we spend a lot of money on in, in places on uh, what they call MHUs, manufactured housing units, um, that maybe if we did permanent repairs instead, it could be cheaper and keep the people in their homes longer. What we're doing is we start to look forward going uh, to other places and uh, how we can do that differently with infrastructure as well, and not just manufactured housing. If you can do, we did temporary repairs, a STEP program in New York, also mm -hmm. did in Louisiana, and version in Texas, Puerto Rico, that if you can keep people in their homes that longer and then do permanent repairs, that's going to help rebuild better in the long run. There's many different opportunities uh, to do that. I know uh, FEMA is current looking uh, how to do that better, uh, but building resiliency is not just rebuilding to what it was, it's rebuilding better. Uh, Brad, can you elaborate? I mean, there's a consensus that uh, disaster response needs to change and there's lots of discussions. What can we look forward to? Are, are, are changes happening around the issue of resilience? Uh, I do think changes are happening around the issues of resilience. Um, my fear is that they're probably not happening fast enough. Um, the pace of natural disaster is is moving faster than our acceptance of the fact that we have to build back better. So to Richie's earlier point, um, the, 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 the amount of money that any entity, whether it's the federal government, state or local governments, or the private sector invests in mitigating risk, is a risk management decision, right? You're, you're making a decision about how much risk you're facing and how much you're willing to pay to buy down that risk. Uh, and that's all about probability and consequence. And so the, the laws and regulations that govern, uh, frankly, every level of government are, are all about different views about that risk management. After Hurricane Sandy, uh, we put a very significant proportion of the available dollars into mitigating risk. Um, I will tell you that even though we're seeing an extreme increase in natural hazards, we're not necessarily seeing a commensurate increase 
in public infrastructure damage or home damage where there were levees that were built and in areas that were flood zones, where there were mitigation that the Corps took or uh, that, uh, that local and state governments and the federal government contributed to. And so I think one of the things we have to do is start talking more effectively about the value of mitigation, um, which frankly has not been a sexy topic in emergency management. And yet, and yet, had, uh, had reasonable readiness in mitigation would have reduced and alleviated so much suffering in the last nine months across the country from Puerto Rico to American Samoa. I want to go to Daniel in Puerto Rico. Uh, Daniel, I wonder in the wake of um, Irma and um, <clears throat> Maria, whether uh, primary health care facilities and the clinics that you're dealing with, are they putting new standards in place or new ways of communicating or new ways of preparing for disasters? Well, um, health centers are restoring some, uh, some of the power is already on the health center. Um, probably we have like four health center or three that is work, still working with generators. And we still um, figured out how to be more efficient for next hurricane season. Because we are now like at three or three and a half months for start the new uh, hurricane season. So we are, uh, we learned a lot about Irma and Maria and we are preparing ourselves to try figure out um, some equipment that can work with solar power, um, doing a storage with, you know, control of humidity for the medicine on other um, medical equipment, the flood areas to try to, you know, separate the importance vehicles and and other equipment that the health center need to move, like uh, mobile clinics and tents that they build in the community. So health centers are now uh, some of the the equipment that it was all they are restoring with new equipment because now they know the importance the importance of you know that equipment in the community and. How, how efficient they can be offering their service to the community that cannot come because it's very far or have a lot of social determinants of health and it's difficult to, to receive the, the continuous service in the health center. So health centers are doing um, a lot of um, analysis and, and collecting data to keep, you know, uh, more uh, prepare for the new season and and we from the PCA we keep working with different NGOs because we're still receiving donations we're still receiving some kind of grants for the health center and we are like no try to learn more and different different um different supplies that we can uh, get more advantage of them with the health center, with the community, and and make more alliance with NGOs and other organizations that can bring help to the PCA and bring help to the NGOs. Uh, I mean, to the community health centers. I have a question. I'm not sure who could answer it, but things as basic as a generator. Uh, you know, people need generators when there's a natural disaster. Is there any forward thinking that says? A place like Puerto Rico, everything everybody needs a generator, and 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 creating a kind of infrastructure that gets down to the sort of residential level, or is that just pie in the sky and we're nowhere near that? 
I'm going to take a little bit of that. Um, Puerto Rico did become a lot more resilient after Georgia's, and a lot of people bought generators um, that they didn't have before. Actually, my parents themselves bought a generator, and uh, it was running through the um, Irma and Maria. But I, but you cannot have a resilient community just based on, on generators, because generators also have a, a short lifespan if they're running 24 hours, seven days a week. Uh, actually, every 240 hours, you need to service them. And then there's a requirement for materials, oil, filters, and other things. So it, it's a snowball effect. So you got to be careful there. you got to have other alternative sources of, of power uh, or energy in order to become really resilient. And what is happening? Yes, Brad, I'll just add into that. I was just going Go to say, sorry, that, that we're, Red Cross is currently involved in the long-term recovery with our partners in Puerto Rico, and one of the key issues in the health sector is, in fact, being able to provide emergency generators for people at the household level when they have oxygen concentrators or a CPAP or other essential machinery. But to, to Jose's point, um, what we're all looking at is solar power generators that are easy to operate. You don't have to do a lot of wiring, plug them into the wall. Um, but it's that kind of thinking that it makes that solution sustainable. Uh, we did, a, we did a, a number of gas power generators in the immediate response phase because people had literally health safety, life safety issue that needed to be addressed. Um, so there are a number of organizations in Puerto Rico now that are, are addressing that sort of pillar of health care and the intersection with that in power. It also was a big deal in, in the Virgin Islands, and I don't want to let that go by. Um, the, there's no dialysis capability or capacity today at all in the Virgin Islands because there's no power or hospital facility to support it. Everyone who needed dialysis in the Virgin Islands has been evacuated to the continent of the mainland. So this is a really serious issue uh, at the household level. I want to go back to Kelly uh, and ask her, uh, as someone with a sort of high-tech digital company able to communicate, is that does that relevant in the time when a power grid is just kind of knocked to its knees? I mean, are, there, are the special uh, skills and ability that a high-tech company have, how, how useful are they? It's just as useful as, um, you know, if there's no power, and once the phone runs out or there's no Wi-Fi, then there, we have the same challenges. Um, so I think the struggle for us is um, being able to communicate once infrastructure is restored or those that are, you know, going to the areas where there is Wi-Fi or connection. And I think many of us have been in disasters where even myself, like for my car, I always keep an extra charger, um, like a battery uh, charger that I can plug in and I keep my car completely fueled because I've been through many disasters and that's my only source of power. Um, and so I think... Um, for a, a company like ours, we, you know, no one can utilize the internet if, if it's not there. So I think infrastructure is critical. Just on a quick follow-up quickly, I think one of the things that you have to look at, Brad just touched on it, is look at new technologies on how to generate power, not just solar. And, you know, Tesla is looking at putting some, some in the, they're powering a whole hospital there. So I think we have to completely shift the way we look at it. It's not just going to be gasoline generators. Sure. How we generate power, because you can generate power differently uh, and use new tech to say, how do, can you get a little bit of uh, power that you can now use other tech to say, oh, I have something neighbors helping neighbors. And so then you're together. less dependent on a grid. And exactly. So, you're less so I think you have right. to, exactly. and that's why I think looking uh, down the future, the way we look at disasters is going to dramatically change. We have to look at some new technologies and how that's going to change. We're getting toward the end, uh, but we wanted to open it up to questions. And Lisa has a few from our online audience. Hi, thanks everyone. We have a ton of questions coming in and not much time. So I'd like to take a couple from online and then we'll see if there are any in the studio audience and hopefully go back to online. Um, 
We have had a number of questions about mental health issues uh, impacting residents, and uh, this is for Dr. Ramos. Um, what has Dr. Ramos seen in terms of mental health effects on residents? Um, health Center was working with, uh, they, they got mental health programs. Also, they have a um, program with use and abuse uh, drug and substance use and abuse and they was working with the community in resilience, mental health, also with the employees, because we received like two, 247 employees that lost permanently and total their homes. So they start working with the employees, then they start working with the community and also with the special uh, population that they also work with, that is the public housing, the homeless and the people who work in the farm. So yes, um, the community health center was prepared to work in, uh, offer not only the primary care and prescription medicines, also with the mental health program. Great, great, thank you. Um, here's a question from Facebook. I'm curious what is being done to support medical supply manufacturers in Puerto Rico. The shortage of supplies for things like IV bags has absolutely reached the mainland and has become a problem felt even in Boston. That was, obviously, it's tied to power. Um, so we actually tackled that as quickly as we could. There were some of the, the, some of those factories were actually in the hardest hit sectors of the island, the southeast where the eye entered. So it took uh, most of the grid completely down. Um, and they were, we worked hard to restore power there. Actually, you had to restore, create a microgrid just for one of those factories to be able to start back up and produce the, uh, those medical supplies. Great, thank you. And while we have you, Jose, a number of people are asking, um, what would you say is the estimate for when electricity would be fully restored on the island? And I know you spoke about this in a Facebook Live segment we yes. did as well. So we continue to, uh, to tackle this real hard, but the, we still continue to say that the, towards the end of, of March, we should have 95%. We're running on 90%. People will say, well, you know, it's okay, four weeks to 5%. Yeah, but that's we get into the, some of the remote areas, some of the hardest uh, to get to and longer time to, to fix. It may not impact uh, a million people in that repair, it might only pick, impact 10,000 people, it's still 10,000 people that are very important, right? And then the other 5%, we think that it could take until May uh, to, to finish up. And that is, uh, to be honest, uh, I mean, it's heartfelt and for me it's very difficult to even say. Thank you, thank you. And here's another one, I'm just gonna plow ahead. <laughs> um, do we, and we've had a number of questions about this, do we know much about how hurricane events impact the incidence of mosquito-borne or other vector-borne diseases? We have had a number of questions about this. Just, I, I think at a very basic level, um, hurricanes create standing water, standing water creates uh, mosquito-borne diseases, and the longer it takes the water to recede, whether it's a flood or a hurricane, the greater the risk you have and the more tropical the climate, which is generally hurricane season. So um, the more of these events we see, the greater the risk we're going to have. Yeah. I also want to say that um, here from the PCA, we was receiving a lot of mosquito nets and insect repellents. So all that kind of donation we was offering to the health center and the health center was working with the community, try to identify some of the places that can be more worse for the mosquito to uh, grow up. And they, they was like educating the community about how to use correctly the mosquito net and the insect repellent. 
Thank you, and I'll just take one more from online, then we'll just go to our audience. Um, there has been a lot of controversy around the actual death toll in Puerto Rico, and we've had a number of comments coming in about that. Might any of you comment on that? I think the official death toll was put at 64, but there's a lot of concern that it's much higher uh, because of deaths related to the impact of the hurricane. Does any of our panelists have a latest figure for what's estimated? for total deaths. I do not, but I do know that the, the number has been, um, is there's a study going on that the governor has um, um, put together uh, and is still looking at, it has to do with, with the indirect impacts, right? Um, there was a lot of media uh, focus on that, CNN and others uh, cover, uh, try to uncover what was going on, uh, if it was really true and what could have been uh, those people, maybe the Red Cross, I'm not sure, Brad, if you had uh, anything on that. Yeah, the, I think the, the, the bottom line is that um, where there were direct, uh, where, where you could clearly create a nexus between, and a medical examiner would be doing this, right, between a, the event itself and death, um, those numbers um, generate relatively quickly. The problem is, and let's go back to the mental health issue earlier, Puerto Rico was struggling with an increase in mental health over the past 10 years anyway. That was a documented issue, right? Uh, we know that catastrophic and traumatic events like this cause increased rates of suicide. They cause increased rates of spousal abuse and child abuse. Those are also well documented. But trying to to, to count, right, to, 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 to head count, which, which were caused, how much was the cause, um, that is an incredibly challenging uh, task for any for any level of government or private sector. And so I think I, I would leave it with this. Um, Hurricane Maria caused suffering for for millions of people. And I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to allocate or anyone will be able to allocate which which person suffered, you know, 100% from the storm or 80% from the storm. But whatever was going bad that day, it was exacerbated by Maria. So I think the people should understand it's a really tough task. Thank you, thank you. I do see people looking at me from the audience, so let's just, maybe yes. we can just take one. Well, thank you to our panel and to the forum for bringing you all together. Um, leadership, uh, leaders set the priorities, they set the pace, they recruit allies in a crisis such as this. What are some of the leadership lessons, crisis leadership lessons that we can take from the hurricane season and from what we saw in Puerto Rico? I, I think a, a couple of things that people can take uh, from the leadership point of view is you have to be able to, to look at this in many different facets. You have to be able to figure out how you're able to lead your own people, uh, but also how you're able to lead up to others. And then across to many different aspects, to lead across to the cities and the states, the territories, how you're able to lead with the Red Cross, the business community, the nonprofits. It's how you're able to lead up, down, across, and beyond, but also in many different areas. It's not just one leader. It has to be a swarm of people that come together, focused around a unity and mission, how they're able to work together, have that one thing that everybody is, is rallying to, saving lives, uh, and then how do you able to build that trust and foundation of relationships, everybody working mm -hmm. together in their own lane, and then how you're able to, uh, over a period of time, have that, um, not just unity spirit, working together, but how you're able to, to really have that, put all your egos aside and help each other out throughout, how you need to build that swarm. It's not just one leader, it's everybody working together. Now we'll say the leader also obviously is in charge of the messaging as well too, to the people. And there's the expectancy that all the information is going to come out from the 
from that leader, or from the leadership uh, body. And so uh, going to a positive message versus a negative message, you know, it, it, it's, it makes a huge difference. Um, and setting the right expectations makes a huge difference as well too. And I think that's something that uh, I think will be learned from this event. And one thing I would add is I, what I, the reason I love this work and I've been in doing it for so long is that it's, um, it's something that bring, brings people together. So people that typically don't work together come together in times like this. And I think as leaders, it's on us um, to really be open to that and open to the possibilities of different types of partnerships. Um, ideally looking at how you do that pre-disaster, but when you're in the middle of six. Um, also figuring out how do you take care of yourself and take care of all of those around you and, and on your team, I think is probably one of the most challenging things, but something that we're certainly looking to address um, this year to prepare for um, more and more, as Brad alluded to, um, only increasing in uh, frequency, scale, and scope. And so um, I think a lot of it is about how we take care of ourselves and our people um, and setting expectations, but then it's also being open to the possibility and allowing change, That's allowing right. new partnerships. Mm -hmm. We have to wrap up now. Um, sorry, I can't take any more questions, but I'd like each speaker to uh, leave us with some uh, brief takeaway policy message um, that we can pass along. Jose? Um, this is, was a very difficult uh, thing, continues to be a difficult thing for the people of Puerto Rico. And, but we also don't need to forget there is a Virgin Islands, and the Virgin Islands are also suffering as well, too. There, um, there's people in Florida still suffering, people in Texas still suffering. Um, and like Brad mentioned, this is more of the norm coming into the future. And we as a, as a world need to come together with better solutions and be better prepared because what's coming into the future is gonna be more of the same. I think in 2017 and so far in 2018, that we have to realize that things are changing dramatically. We have to build that cultural preparedness. We have to uh, get ready for, as a nation. And we also have to look at how we can um, reduce the complexity of how we do things, how FEMA does things, how bureaucracy does things. We have to change that. But we also have to remember, as I mentioned earlier, what we do is important. It's about people. And don't underestimate the power of hope. Kelly. And I think similar to Rich, um, looking at those policies right now that may have caused friction in these um, several disasters. So where were the pain points? And I'm sure FEMA and others in local jurisdictions are looking at this as well. But um, everything from contractors that are utilized and the processes that are in place, but going back to things like the Stafford Act and making sure that we're prepared this season to try to shift some of those things. Obviously, knowing those things take time. Um, and then I can't overemphasize relationships and partnerships and trying to establish those now and going back to those communities that were so hard hit last year so that we're more prepared. Brad? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a very pragmatic thing. If you're listening or watching this broadcast now, do me a favor, do yourself a favor. I, I'll, I beg you, I implore you, uh, pick the strongest ask verb you can come up with. Download an emergency app right now. As soon as this is over, go to your phone, iOS, Android, I don't care where you are. Use the Red Crosses, use FEMA, use the Weather Service, download multiple. They're free. They will help you understand in a disaster what's happening. They will help you understand where to go for help. They'll help you to prepare. These are incredibly useful tools. Please, if you do nothing else today, download an app from one of those organizations or multiple. It, it will help. It really will. Thank you. And Daniel Ramos. Um, keep working strong with the Alliance, the NGOs, 
Um, don't forget that the community health center is the first line to respond to the community and the biggest opportunity that the community, the health, the, the health, um, health centers has to identify the community leaders that are inside the community that can open more the doors for the health center and other entities to go and help. So uh, as, the nature, as, as nature here in Puerto Rico after the storm show us that um, we are um, building strong leaf with strong branch. So we are getting prepared for next season and trust me, we're gonna be uh, hurricane strong. <laughs> I wanna thank all our, our panelists and all of you for joining us today. And I wanna encourage um, our viewers to tune into our next forum, which is Health in the LGBTQ Community, Improving Care and Confronting Discrimination. That's on March 21st from noon to 1 p.m. at the forum hsph.org. Thank you very much. This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.